making his way through the crowd toward the river where John is standing. Who is he? Why is he here? Why is his baptism going to be more significant than everyone else's? Why have John's eyes widened at the sight of this particular ordinary looking man? There's four things we want to notice as we watch these events unfold in our mind's eye at the Jordan River. At Jesus' baptism, first of all, we see the sun set apart for service. The sun, that's obviously sun, S-O-N, set apart for service. Look at verse 13. This is a purpose statement. There's, there's great purpose in what Jesus is doing in verse 13. He came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. The language is very deliberate there. Jesus was on a mission. Indeed, he's on a mission that's going to take him three years to complete. But this is the beginning of it. It's about a 70-mile-ish trip for Jesus to come from Nazareth uh, to the banks of the Jordan River. And he is here on a mission. And John is surprised. He's, you might even say, it's maybe not too strong a word, he's horrified to see Jesus wanting to be baptized. We see that in verse 14. Remember, John had told the crowds, verse 11, I'm not even fit to carry the sandals of the one who's coming. The one who's coming is mightier than I. And yet Jesus arrives and the first thing he says to John is, I want you to baptize me. I want to submit to your ministry. To go back to the illustration of the concert, it's as though the warm-up act is just about to leave the stage. And a far more famous, a world-famous act that's about to come out, comes onto the stage and, and says to the warm-up act, no, 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 where are you going? Let, let's go back onto the stage. Let's perform one of your best songs together. Imagine the warm-up act thinking that. I can't believe this person, this great musician who's far greater than me wants to perform my song. What was John's baptism all about? It was a baptism of Repentance. John didn't baptize anyone unless they were convicted by his preaching and confessed their sins, we're told in chapter 3. So why was Jesus coming to be baptized? Look what he says in verse 15. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness, the word has the broad sense of doing right, doing what is good. But also in the New Testament, it has the sense of doing all that God requires. Obeying God's law fully and perfectly. In what sense was Jesus doing that by being baptized by John? Friends, he was being set apart for service. He was voluntarily stepping forward to take on the work that his father had ordained for him to do, had planned for him to do from all eternity. He was doing the work of a priest. In the Old Testament, the priests offered the sacrifices. That bronze altar that we read about in Exodus, it would be the priests who would tend to that altar, who would offer sacrifices on that altar. It wasn't just anyone who strolled into the courtyard of the tabernacle or of the temple in later days and offered the sacrifices. It was only those who were set apart to do it. And that's what the word ordained means. Uh, there was an ordination in one of our uh, neighboring churches there uh, during the week. 
uh, and, and ministers are ordained or missionaries sometimes are, are ordained or elders and deacons are ordained. But the root of the word means that you're set apart. You stop doing one thing and you start doing something else, an important role that you're dedicating yourself to. This was Jesus' ordination and in many ways it echoed the ordination of a priest. The priests had to undergo ceremonial washing when they stepped forward to serve the tabernacle or the temple. Numbers 8 verse 5 says, The Lord spoke to Moses, Take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. Thus you shall do to them to cleanse them. Sprinkle the water of purification upon them and let them go with a razor over all their body and wash their clothes and cleanse themselves. And there's an echo of that. Obviously, Jesus doesn't carry it out uh, literally here with John, but there's an echo of that in the sense that he is coming to receive water to be cleansed. Numbers 4 tells us that this happened when the Levites were 30 years old. And in Luke chapter 3, verse 30, Luke tells us that Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. And so the first reason, friends, for Jesus' baptism is that here he is voluntarily leaving behind the relatively quiet, the relatively peaceful, relatively stress-free life of being a carpenter in Nazareth. And he is willingly, publicly committing himself to the work that his father had for him to do of fulfilling all righteousness, of obeying his father, and eventually of offering himself the full and final sacrifice for sin. And if the Lord should so call us, friends, there may be many ordinations, if I can use that phrase, that we're to carry out in our lives. Some, of course, some of us, those of us who are called to church leadership, we, we are ordained publicly, we're, we're set apart, uh, recognized by the church in doing so. Your elders and your deacons have gone through that. Missionaries go through that. But maybe there are things in your life that you could set apart for the Lord. Maybe there are certain times in your week that you could give to some form of service of the Lord. Someone that you could invest some time in. Maybe there are ministries that the Lord has particularly laid your heart to set aside money for. And, and you give particularly to whatever particular ministry it is that, that you have a burden for and an interest in and you're, you're investing in it by your prayers and, and by your financial gifting. Maybe there's a particular gift that you have and in due course, God will make it clear to you that you need to be set apart by the church to use that gift. Maybe men, God will call you to be a preacher of the word of God or an elder in the local church or a deacon in the local church. Maybe men or women, the time will come when God sets you apart for mission work, near or far. Here was our Savior undertaking the most costly, the most demanding, the most sacrificial work you could possibly be ordained for, the giving of his life. And he gladly steps forward and he says, I will fulfill all righteousness and I will, I will, I will be set apart for the work my Father has for me. Have we got that same ready attitude, friends, to serve in the ways that our Father might have for us to serve? 
But not only do we see the Son set apart for service at Jesus' baptism, we see the Savior standing in for sinners at Jesus' baptism. And this was the other main reason for his baptism, the Savior standing in for sinners. Again, this is why John was so taken aback, maybe even horrified by Jesus wanting to be baptized. John, rather, has been baptizing sinners. The water that he poured upon them symbolized their need for cleansing. Jesus had no need of cleansing. John says to him, it should be you baptizing me. In fact, as we're told in John's gospel, and of course, it's different John who wrote his gospel, but he tells us about John the Baptist. And in John's gospel, the words of John the Baptist are recorded for us at this incident. When he saw Jesus approaching, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So why is the one who takes away the sin of the world receiving a baptism that sinners receive? Again, John tries to prevent it from happening. Verse 14, uh, one writer points out this is the first time in the New Testament that you read of a follower of Jesus not really understanding Jesus and thinking that they know better than Jesus. John the Baptist would not be the last to make that mistake. But Jesus, you see, had come for this very reason, to stand where sinners ought to stand, to receive what sinners ought to receive. And here he is at the very outset of his ministry, giving us a little hint of what will happen at the climax of his ministry. Here he is showing that he is willing to bear the sins of his people. Here's Jesus saying, what my people ought to receive, I will receive. Where they are, I will come. I will unite myself to them. I will give myself to them. John Calvin says he received the same baptism with us in the sense that we also receive water baptism today in order to assure believers that they are engrafted into his body, that they are buried with him in baptism, that they may rise to newness of life. Calvin there quoting from Romans 6 verse 4. Friends, the baptism of Jesus foreshadowed the death of Jesus, the kind of death he was going to die, the death of a substitute. Boys and girls, I've mentioned to you before, you know what a substitute is. It's someone who takes the place of someone else. Someone can't play on during a football or a hockey match. The coach sends in a different player to do the job that the first person was supposed to do. That's Jesus. At his baptism and at his cross, he was doing the job of a substitute. In the Jordan River, Jesus had water poured upon him. At Calvary on the cross, Jesus had the wrath of God poured upon him. He received a baptism of fire. He stood where sinners ought to stand and deserve to stand. So two reasons why Jesus was baptized. He was being set apart for service and he was standing in for sinners. An ordination is usually a joyful moment. I'm sure it was a joyful moment for our neighboring congregation on Friday night past. It's an encouraging time when someone is brought forward who is 
committing themselves to the service, the dedicated service of Christ, how much more thankful should we be for the ordination of Jesus? His baptism proves that he would and did obey God perfectly in all things, Romans 5.19. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience <coughs> the many will be made righteous. Jesus received this baptism, friends, for you. And he received that baptism of fire on the cross as well for you. Jesus stood at the Jordan River and he was nailed to the cross for our anger, our impatience, our lust, our laziness, our selfishness. Jesus willingly stepped forward and said, I'll have the wrath of God poured upon me for their shame, their idolatry, their sin. I'm willing to be set apart to obey my Father. This wasn't the kind of Messiah people expected, but it's exactly the kind of Messiah we needed. So at his baptism, we see the Son of God set apart for service. We see the Savior standing in for sinners. Thirdly, we see the Spirit's power provided. The Spirit's power provided. Look at verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Uh, the heavens were opened, we're told. The language there is of receiving a vision or getting a glimpse into heaven itself. This is the kind of language that we see sometimes in the prophets, particularly in the prophecy of Ezekiel. It begins with these words. Uh, we saw it too in Revelation. Uh, and, and here at Jesus' baptism, prophecy is being fulfilled. Uh, Isaiah 11 verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. And so the prophet said that when the Messiah comes, he will be specially anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, this was a mark of God's chosen leaders in the Old Testament. They, they had a special anointing. They had special or extraordinary help from the Holy Spirit. Men like Moses and David and the prophets, they were spirit-filled men. First uh, Samuel 16, for example, verse 13 says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil <coughs> and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So David had a special pouring out of the Spirit upon him when he became king of Israel. And if that was the case for David, how much more must the Spirit have empowered Jesus, the sinless, flawless Son of God? It's important to appreciate, friends, that Jesus had the Spirit already before his baptism. He, of course, was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit was upon him from his first moment of human existence. But this is the special equipping of the Spirit. This is, a, if you like, a further pouring out of the Spirit upon Jesus. And it marks him out again. What's the whole point that Matthew is driving at here? It marks him out again as the Messiah. The, the one who was chosen by God for this particular work 
of saving his people and bringing in the kingdom of God. Again, Isaiah 61 verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Jesus quoted that passage himself, of course, when he first preached uh, in Nazareth. And so the Spirit here coming down upon Christ is further confirmation that he is the Messiah, that he is being specially equipped for the special task that lies ahead of him. You might ask, why does the Spirit descend like a dove? Uh, Certainly many commentators have spilled a lot of ink over this question. Um, What does all of this mean, that the Spirit came like a dove? Well, note the word like. And I tried to emphasize this to you when we were going through Revelation, uh, that there may be something of the visionary language here. Uh, This was probably not a literal dove, uh, but the Spirit descends like a dove upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I think one of the best explanations that I came across in this, that it perhaps ties in with the theme of new beginnings. Uh, We've seen this already in Matthew's Gospel. The Spirit comes upon Jesus, uh, perhaps hovering like a dove, uh, in such a way to show that Jesus, that this is the beginning of something new. Again, you think of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And similarly here, as Jesus' ministry begins, the Spirit descends and perhaps if we're not reading too much into the text, hovers. There there is some visionary aspect to the fact that the Spirit is coming upon Jesus. And even more important than that, friends, the the Spirit descending uh, as it did, regardless of the fact that he descended as a dove, it's making clear to everyone present here that Jesus is no ordinary man. The heavens opened. Something heavenly came upon Christ showing that he is the divine, heaven-sent man, that he comes from the same place where this spirit has descended from. He comes from heaven. So there are many different layers to the importance of Jesus being clothed with the Holy Spirit, as well as the fact that it emphasizes his divinity, that he has been sent down from heaven. In a sense, too, friends, it speaks to the fact that Jesus came and was fully man. That he was and remains fully human, now and forever. And that in his humanity, in his humanity, Jesus, two natures, the divine nature and the human nature, in his human nature, Jesus needed the constant equipping, encouraging power of the Holy Spirit. It's important, let's, let's switch on here if we, and think about this. It's important to understand this about Jesus, friends. How did, how did Jesus battle temptation? How did Jesus resist temptation every time it came along? The answer is, is not entirely, well, Jesus was God. Yes, he is God. But in his humanity, how did he resist temptation? Because he didn't cheat. He really had to face the pressures of the world, the temptations of Satan? The answer is that he did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything Jesus did in his life, his fulfilling all righteousness in his humanity was the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And if Jesus needed the Spirit, friends, how much more do we need the Spirit? Jesus prayed day after day after day. In the Gospel of Luke, we're told that he would often withdraw to lonely or desolate places to pray. On another occasion, Luke tells us that Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. Luke 10, verse 21. Being full of the Spirit prompted Jesus to praise God. And so if we want to know what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is our perfect example. Here are the true signs of someone full of the Holy Spirit. Prayer, praise, self-sacrificing service. Prayer, praise, self-sacrificing service. And in the course of that service, the fruit of the Spirit will be evident. Love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth that Paul speaks of in Galatians 5. Jesus models what it means to be full of the Spirit. It is not about dramatic gifts of prophecy or speaking in languages primarily. It's about humble service. It's about fighting temptation, wrestling in prayer, praising God's name. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. We touched on this this morning. It's not possible to be a, to be a Christian that doesn't have the Holy Spirit within you. Paul says in Ephesians 1.13, In him, that's in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So we do have the power of the Holy Spirit available to us if we're Christians. The question is only, are we using the power that we have available to us? Are we asking for it? Are we making use of it? Most of us probably have a lawnmower in the garage. Come March or April, we'll get it out again and start cutting the grass. Imagine if instead of using the lawnmower, you saw your neighbor out cutting the grass with a pair of kitchen scissors. How foolish would that look? You think, why are they wasting all that time and effort when there is far greater power available to them? And yet so often in the situations we find ourselves facing as Christians, that's the equivalent of what we're doing. Because we're not bringing whatever the problem is to God in prayer. We're not recognizing our deficiencies and asking for the power of the Holy Spirit to fill up where we lack. We're not committing situations, conversations, gospel opportunities to the Lord in prayer. We head into all kinds of challenges, big and small every day, acting like atheists, acting as though there is no power available to us for the things that we need. The mark of whether a Christian is a spirit-filled Christian or a church is a spirit-filled church is not primarily about gifts or about the miraculous gifts, but how well attended are the prayer meetings. How often, is the Christian, how often is the individual Christian in the place of prayer asking for the help that we need for the tasks that we face? Jesus needed the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> At Jesus' baptism, we see the Son set apart for service. We see the Savior standing in for sinners. We see the, Spirit, uh, the Spirit's power uh, poured out 
And finally, we see the Father's pleasure proclaimed. The Father's pleasure proclaimed. Look at verse 17. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Most remarkable about the baptism of Jesus is the fact that it was uh, what we would call a, a Trinitarian event, if I can use, it that, use that phrase that way. What I mean is, here we see the Son is baptized, the Spirit descends, and the Father speaks. If you ever have the opportunity to speak to a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or some of the other sects, uh, or, or a Muslim as well, they, they obviously don't believe in the Trinity, Here's one of the places to take them and have them explain to you what is going on here. And when they can't explain it with grace and wisdom, you explain it to them. That this is where we see evidence of the Trinity. And the Trinity, if you like, are giving their seal of approval to the baptism of Jesus and to the ministry of Jesus that will follow on from his baptism. There's more weight to this event because the Spirit descends and because the Father speaks. If you think of some of the big events that you watch on, on TV, maybe Wimbledon in the summer or a royal wedding or uh, we, many, many of us, I'm sure, watched the, the Queen's funeral last year. Uh, and sometimes it's a, it's a case of watching and, and spotting who's who and who's turned up. Uh, it adds weight to the occasion if you can say, well, so-and-so was there. Wow, they turned up. And you take a note of all the, the big names that, that arrive on the scene. Friends, the Trinity arrive at the scene of Jesus' baptism. This is the public unveiling of the Messiah. And this is further proof that he is the Messiah. The Spirit anoints him. The Father declares his pleasure in, in him. The Father is really saying to everyone, look, here he is. Here's the one I sent down to you. J.C. Ryle has a lovely comment, uh, his great little books on the Gospels. He says at this point, it was the whole Trinity which at the beginning of creation said, let us make man. It was the whole Trinity again which at the beginning of the Gospel seemed to say, let us save man. And with the world watching on, the Father proclaims his pleasure in Jesus of Nazareth, and publicly declares him to be my beloved son. He is the son of God. He is the Messiah. He is to be believed. And alert Jewish men and women, if they heard this, and, and we believe that they did, those who were watching on, they might have thought of Isaiah 42 and verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Here is the father saying, this is the one, my beloved son. If you're a Christian this evening, do you realize that this is the father's verdict on you? John says in 1 John 3 verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, beloved, we are God's children. This is my beloved son. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you're full of the Spirit, 
you're a son of God. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, the beloved son, you're a beloved son. Sons can pray. Sons are loved. Sons can trust their father. Sons know that their father knows what is best for them. That's your position this evening. If you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a beloved child of the Father. Do you realize that the Father's verdict on Christ is his verdict on you despite all your sin? You're not primarily, your primary identity in the eyes of your Father this evening is not sinner, but son, beloved son. But not only that, as we think about what the Father said here about the Son, not only do we need to realize that this is his verdict on us if we belong to Christ. But perhaps we need to ask ourselves, do you share the Father's pleasure in the Son? Do you hold the same opinion of Jesus as the Father in heaven did? That he is the one sent down from heaven, that he is the one to be believed? Have you committed yourself to him? Do you have union with Christ? Have you been baptized have you received that outward sign because of the, the physical inward change that you know that you need? Or have you rejected the Son, the one that heaven says is the Messiah? John Flavel, great Puritan writer, he preached wonderful sermons on the person and work of Jesus. He preached one on that most well-known of verses, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And commenting on that verse, Flavel says, the greatest love that has ever been displayed in this world is the father giving his precious son to the world. That being the case, it follows, he says, that the greatest evil and wickedness would be in despising and rejecting that son. Are you guilty of rejecting him this evening? Are you guilty of that great wickedness? Or have you received the Son? Have you recognized that he has stood in your place, taken your punishment, and made you a child of God? So will you not declare as God himself did that all your pleasure is in Jesus Christ? As we leave the banks of the Jordan this evening, will we not give thanks, not just for his baptism at the Jordan, but his baptism at Calvary, by which he cleanses us from all our sin and gives us the right to be called as he is called, beloved sons of God. Amen.